Beth Bennett. And I'm Alejandro Soto. This is How on Earth, The Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 12th, 2016. Coming up, an interview with a local author, Bob Crafasi, who wrote a book on water use in the Front Range. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. If you've ever fantasized about living in a tropical island paradise, climate scientists from CU Boulder cautioned that it might be best for this to stay only in your dreams. Rising sea levels and more intense storms threaten many of these scattered islands. Now, a new report in Nature Climate Change warns that at the present rate of greenhouse gas level rise, nearly 75% of these islands will be more arid by the middle of the century. Chris Karnaskis is with CU's Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences and is the lead author of the study. Karnaskis says that as the earth grows warmer, any fresh water that rains down on these islands is likely to evaporate more quickly. For the 18 million people who live on these scattered islands, she says this will make life more challenging. As for people who love the idea of tropical islands for playing in the sunshine, lots of sea and sand, She says it's going to be a lot less nice in paradise. This Wednesday evening, April 13th, journalist Timothy Egan will give a talk at CU Boulder at Old Main. He'll be speaking Wednesday night because each year, the Center of American West presents the Wallace Stegner Award to an individual who has made a sustained contribution to the cultural identity of the West through literature, art, history, lore, or an understanding of the West. The center says this year it's giving the award to Egan because he has demonstrated singular achievement, creativity, and dedication to the perception of the West and Western issues. Mr. Egan writes op-ed pieces with a Western perspective for the New York Times. He is also author of seven books, including The Worst Hard Times, which won the 2006 National Book Award for Nonfiction. Egan's talk at CU Boulder takes place this Wednesday evening in the Old Main Building at 6.30. As renewable energy sources grow, so does the demand for new ways to store the energy. An exciting result published last week in the journal Environmental Science and Technology Letters described a milestone in energy storage, a rechargeable battery driven by bacteria. Solar wind and other renewable energy sources are gaining ground as nations work to lower greenhouse gas emissions and reliance on fossil fuels. But sunlight and wind are not constant, so consumers can't count on them 24-7. Storing energy can make renewables more reliable, but current technologies such as lithium-ion batteries are limited by safety issues, high costs, and other factors. To make a bacterial storage battery, researchers from Wageningen University in the Netherlands combined two separate microbial systems. The first employs bacteria which build a small molecule, acetate, using electricity. The second system breaks down the acetate to release electricity. The researchers successfully charged the battery over a 16-hour period and discharged it over the next eight hours, mimicking the day-night pattern typical for solar energy production. They repeated this cycle 15 times in 15 days. 
With further optimization, they say the energy density of the microbial battery could be competitive with conventional technologies. Someday, it might help us store energy from local renewable sources safely and at a lower cost than current options. Coming up later in April, join CU Wizards for a special interactive math show that is sure to awaken a fresh sense of wonder and appreciation of the abounding mathematical patterns in nature for kids of all ages and their families. The show will be Saturday, April 23rd at Duane Physics, room G1B30 on the CU campus. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Today in the studio with me is local author Bob Crafasi. Bob works in water management and planning and is an environmental scientist with over 25 years experience. He was the water resources administrator for the City of Boulder's Open Space and Mountain Parks Department. He has served on board of directors of 11 ditch companies and is the president of several, supervising all aspects of ditch operation. I recently read his book, A Land Made of Water. There's an amazing amount of local history that is completely fascinating in this book. So I wanted to start off, Bob, by asking you what some of your favorite stories of the past in Boulder County were. Well, thank you, Beth, for having me here this morning. There's really a, a huge amount of things that have occurred in Boulder, Boulder County, left-hand valleys that have uh, really informed and influenced events around the western United States that took place right here. Uh, the whole notion of prior appropriation, first in time, first in right, which uh, many of us think of as uh, uh, singularly western in nature, in many ways developed in the Boulder and Left Hand Valleys and in the Greater Front Range. So that's one really fascinating thing. Yes, in fact, I remember reading with fascination the story of that court case. I believe it was Coffin versus Left Hand. Right. Could you talk a little bit about that? There were some very um, exciting and actually semi-criminal aspects of that case, as I recall. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll start with a little background from when it uh, started, uh, really in, during territorial days, the Left Hand Ditch Company, which incidentally is 150 years old this year, uh, the company itself. The settlers that came into Left Hand Valley started to divert water and work on the ditch in about 1863. A uh, gentleman by the name of Porter Pennock and another Joseph Jameson had heard rumors that the South St. Vrain and uh, Left Hand Creeks get close to each other in the mountains above Ward. And they went up there to explore it. And sure enough, it was close. And they um, worked on developing a short ditch that brought water from the South St. Vrain over to the Left Hand. And that really enabled agriculture to develop in the Left Hand Valley. And so then the company formed and, and they started to divert water and uh, the ditch would wash out the head gate and they'd had go up and rebuild it and that would occur for several years. Well, around uh, 1878, it was a very dry year and folks down below uh, Burlington, which is now known as Longmont, noticed that the creek was drying up and they realized that water was being diverted out of the South St. Vrain into left hand and a uh, person by the name of Reuben Coffin 
uh, decided to take matters into his own hand. Now, he had known about the ditch. His um, uh, wife was married to uh, Porter Pennock, so, so they were very close. In fact, uh, some of them had come across the prairie to settle together. So they were intimately uh, aware of how things were operating. Anyhow, uh, Coffin, who is a uh, Civil War veteran, uh, so in some of the terrible Civil War battles, they went up uh, with uh, another eight people uh, to the area above Ward and tore out the, the diversion dam for left hand. And I, I uh, just as an aside, I was digging through the archives, looking at the um, trial transcripts and all of this. Rumors had said that they had blown up the the dam and in fact it wasn't anything as exciting they mm -hmm. tore it out uh, and then moved all the water down the St. Vrain so that they could get it well the uh, left-hand ditch folks uh, were of course uh, very upset and they hired uh, a person by the name of uh, uh, Whiteley and it turns out he was a uh, confederate uh, colonel a sharpshooter from Georgia who had left Georgia after being um, disappointed with the uh, reconstruction after the Civil War and moved to Colorado and started a law business. And he sued uh, Coffin and his buddies and they were brought into Boulder District Court and Coffin and his, his uh, cohorts hired uh, a fellow by the name of Byron Leander Carr who is also a Civil War vet. Uh, Carr had uh, lost his arm at Appomattox the day before Lee surrendered. So, so there's some really interesting uh, history going on there, and they they represented uh, the Coffin uh, crowd. And, and to make a long story short, uh, Left Hand Ditch won in the Boulder County District Court, and Coffin and, and them uh, appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court where it ended up in front of uh, Chief Justice Elbert, who had formerly been a territorial um, governor. He has a mountain named after him. Uh, he was married to uh, Evans's, uh, the second territorial governor's daughter. Who uh, also so has a mountain named after also, him. <laughs> yes, uh, interesting, interesting folks. And, and he was, uh, Elbert, was uh, very much involved with uh, recognizing that in order for Colorado to develop, we really needed to have water distributed as widely as possible. And he was concerned that corporate and private interest accumulation of water in, into very few hands would hinder the growth of Colorado. He was particularly concerned that if water uh, ownership was maintained with people that just owned water along the river corridor, which is called riparian rights, if that were to uh, become the law of the land, that it would really shut off the possibility for, for growth in the area. It's uh, almost a socialistic view. And in fact, he was involved uh, with creating the Colorado Constitution, which uh, named uh, or, or stated that water is property of the people and they also allowed for county commissioners to set rates for water, some very radical uh, ideas at the time. And uh, as the Supreme Court Justice, he was looking for an opportunity to flesh out the ideas of first in time, first in right. And so he upheld the left-hand uh, uh, decision 
and articulated what we now know as the Colorado Doctrine in that decision. That then propagated uh, up into Wyoming. It followed um, Elwood Mead, who became the state engineer in Wyoming, and then other states as they, be, as they entered uh, the nation, uh, utilized the Colorado Doctrine as the basis for their legal systems for water. And so today, all of the Western states uh, have one variant or another of the Colorado Doctrine as based on the Coffin v. Left Hand decision. And that was a really interesting focus in your book because you developed that in several chapters, how this approach to water use started as almost, as you said, a socialist or populist doctrine. And now it's kind of reversed. And now water rights are held by a small number of large groups and controlled. And there's kind of a revolution brewing against that. Yeah, there's, there's uh, been very interesting in the 1880s and 90s. There were other court decisions that followed on that prevented corporations from uh, ex essentially extorting money from farmers. They, they required uh, various uh, ditches to sell water at reasonable rates and do other things that, that prevented uh, inordinate profits. There were a, a, a very strong reaction against foreign and East Coast uh, capital coming into Colorado to build ditches. And uh, the result of various decisions eventually put the ownership of uh, the various ditches that developed up and down the Front Range into the hands of the various farmers. But we have a system that allows water rights and shares to be bought and sold. And so over several generations, the various cities and industries have accumulated those shares. And so at one time, where it was a very egalitarian system, is now rather consolidated with ownership in cities and such. It's not to say that we don't benefit from that. If uh, various cities didn't own some of these water rights, well, we wouldn't be taking showers or flushing <laughs> toilets. So, so it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, development, but it has, has been a progressive change over the decades. If you're just tuning in, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and I'm Beth Bennett. With me in the studio is Bob Crofasi, and we're talking about his recent book, published by the University of Colorado Press, on the history of water use in the Front Range. The book is called A Land Made of Water. So let's talk about ditches. We all have seen these ditches in our travels around Boulder County. And it was very interesting to me to hear about the history. Like, for instance, they were all dug by hand initially. And now they're, of course, all lined and controlled. Um, can you tell us about a few of the local ditches that we see on our daily routes? Sure. Well, they're, they're all over Boulder. Uh, you really... You really can't avoid them in many ways. Uh, they come out of Boulder Canyon, Left Hand Canyon, uh, South Boulder Canyon, and uh, distribute water across the landscape. If you're here in Boulder, you, if you've spent any time in Ebon G. Fine Park, you'll notice that Farmer's Ditch is there in, in the park, that diversion, and that goes off to the north side. That was built uh, in the 1860s to take water up into what were then dry tablelands north of Boulder. And uh, the folks that founded that ditch, they uh, essentially developed the idea of real estate speculation. They were entrepreneurs uh, developing water. And what they realized is, is that if they uh, bought some land in North Boulder and then built a ditch to it, they could then supply water to farms, turn around and sell their um, 
their water and the, the farmland that they've purchased at a profit. And that's precisely what they did. So that, that ditch goes through uh, the, the Mapleton Hill neighborhood. It goes through the community gardens and all the way up to Boulder Valley Ranch. On South Boulder Creek, uh, William H. Davidson uh, and another intrepid pioneer, he uh, came across um, and he was into mining and that, but he, as part of his accumulation of land for mining, he realized that he also owned various tablelands. Davidson Mesa is now named after him. And he developed his ditch. He, they built it for $14,000. It, it, it uh, takes off near the trailhead for the Mesa Trail off of uh, El Dorado Springs Drive, and it winds its way uh, east through Louisville and, and heads out that way and irrigates a lot of open space land and land in and farms in uh, Louisville and Lafayette. Well, Davidson, in, in developing that, he was able to sell shares and essentially double his money. He had some very uh, well-known uh, settlers uh, in the area investing in his ditch. Um, Senator Teller, who was Colorado's second senator, had uh, land along the ditch. Um, uh, Loveland, the fellow whose name uh, the, the town of Loveland is born after, who was a railroad and coal mine developer, was also an early investor in that ditch. So these guys recognized that building some of these, these ditches created real possibilities for profit. Few of the other ditches around Boulder uh, is Silver Lake Ditch, uh, one that's near and dear to many people's hearts in town. That uh, many people will see the flume that is up in Boulder Canyon near Elephant Buttress, and that was built in the 18, basically 1888 to 1890. By the time Silver Lake Ditch was built, the really good bottomlands were taken. So the earlier ditches. They were able to settle easy to reach lands, easy to dig ditches, and Silver Lake came along kind of at the end of that. William Maxwell, George Oliver, they had helped develop the toll road up Boulder Canyon. They saw opportunities there, and they uh, built that ditch, which was also uh, a, a scheme to sell uh, water for and, and develop real estate. They built um, some of the reservoirs in what's now the Silver Lake watershed that the city of Boulder uh, owns. Mesa Reservoir out at the end of the ditch in North Boulder to operate all of that as an integrated system. And that is exactly what they did and eventually sold that off. And, and today the um, uh, shareholders of Silver Lake Ditch uh, are out there managing it and, and working hard. Folks uh, uh, dealing with a, the aftermath of the flood and such, uh, really difficult work, uh, replacing the flume up in the mountains there, uh, really interesting and difficult work. And of course those ditches, as you just said, are still being used and the repercussions filter through society in a lot of different ways. For instance, just after I finished reading your book, I saw a front page article in the camera about a conflict between between a landowner and a ditch company, and the landowner really liked the cottonwood trees, and the mm -hmm. ditch company wanted to cut them down. And of course, based on the prior appropriations and the water law, the ditch company has the rights. But as you explain in a lot of detail in your book, and maybe you can recap this, the ditch companies then have to go to a lot of expense to enforce their legal rights. Right. The water rights themselves are one thing, but the other aspect of it that a lot of people 
overlook is that there's an easement associated with these ditches. They're, they're called prescriptive easements. And they're essentially easements that have developed over a long historic period of use. When the various people built ditches, like Davidson, he owned the land and he owned the water rights. He didn't go sign himself a, a document saying, you have an easement across your land. He just built it. And back in those days, a lot of the land, like when the Anderson Ditch was built, it was Indian land. They still hadn't even ceded that to the American government uh, as some of the treaties went. So they were building these ditches oftentimes during, during when it was still treaty lands. And uh, then eventually uh, these, these ditches got built. Uh, I like to joke that uh, managing easements have put more lawyers' kids through college than, uh, uh, than the water right transfers themselves because these, these ditch easements become and can become very contentious. You have various cottonwood trees or other really nice lush vegetation growing up along your ditch. And, and uh, then a ditch company comes through and says, well, gosh, we have to uh, cut these trees down or, or bring a backhoe through there to maintain it, which can be very uh, traumatic for a landowner. The ditch company has legal obligations under state law to maintain a ditch. If the ditch were to breach and flood, they become liable for that. They have a right to run water at a certain amount uh, to uh, bring it to their shareholders. And they need to bring equipment through and have it safe for the ditch rider to walk along the land. Yet the landowner maintains rights as well. They have the right to utilize their property and to enjoy that. And the gray area where those uh, two uses intersect are where a lot of conflict occurs. And another area of conflict has to do with that, another re repercussion of the ditch is that there's a lot of seepage into the surrounding area, and that creates what you call the hybrid ecology around the ditches. And maybe you can talk briefly about, like, for instance, the, the orchid story. Sure. Uh, the, the irrigation that occurred, many of these areas, they developed. And in fact, that's why they irrigated. It was arid land. If you had, go out to uh, Coal Creek and that area and look around um, Rocky Flats, you'll see that there's cactuses there and short grass prairie. There are not wetlands out on those flats. When they started to develop those ditches, they, they redistributed the water around the landscape and then could flood irrigate. Well, various riparian plants, like the Ute Lady's Tress Orchid, a, a federally listed species, was then able to distribute itself out and follow itself out into these irrigated hay meadows. Well, when they started looking at the Ute Lady's Tress Orchid, uh, when it was first identified in Boulder Valley, the f initial reaction was, by gosh, we have a rare species here, and there's cattle grazing going on, and that cattle grazing is going to kill off the orchid. So the land managers at Open Space said, no, we have to stop grazing. And that's what they did for a few seasons. Uh, well, lo and behold, Canada thistle and other non-native plants, and then higher grasses, started to grow in and shade out the uh, orchid species. So next thing you know, the orchids are uh, dying off 
and they're scratching their heads and they realize, gosh, we have to bring back grazing in order to protect a federally threatened species. And so what they realize, though, is that if they were careful about when they did the grazing, so that they could avoid grazing when the flowers, the orchid bolts, and spread its seed, they can expand the populations. So oh, that's all we have time for, folks. Sorry, if you want to know more, you'll have to read the book. That was the author, Bob Crafasi, talking about his recent publication, A Land Made of Water. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender and me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Yorma Kalkinen. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Beth Bennett.